look in, in our own country and look at the way Kerala managed uh, the Nipah virus, which mm. was about maybe a couple of years back, mm. and uh, you know immediately contained it. If, actually, even their experience with COVID-19 right now, it is mm. Kerala has really shown the way for, for the entire country, mm. and it's unfortunate that we are not you know adhering to the kind of uh, interventions and measures that they took. Mm. Um, the virus has nothing to do with any religious beliefs it's primarily a zoonotic virus that means it has been transferred from animals to humans so in that sense food related it is food related in the sense it was you know as we all must be knowing it was transferred from eating bats we need to live together we need to live in harmony and we need to take care of the vulnerable and marginalized and not worry over which community they belong to or you know they shouldn't be made to suffer for no fault of them as we are well into the second phase of the covid-19 lockdown few of us now have any doubts that this is an extraordinary situation everywhere administrators are struggling to meet the dual challenge keeping people indoors and at the same time reaching out to people who are on the brink of acute hunger experts are offering advice on what to do if the situation escalates that is more and more people get infected in a very short time economists are racking their brains on what to do to facilitate faster economic recovery after the lockdown lifts this is truly a testing time when we are faced with difficult ethical questions on the 24th day of the lockdown we have salima razvi health economist and policy expert to share her views with us and with you is anand maringanti that's me um in conversation with salima rizvi so thank you very much salima ji for agreeing to speak to us um let me begin by asking you a personal question um this has been an extremely unusual situation where people have been locked up for several weeks and it seems to have actually led to a variety of very unexpected emotions for people so i'm going to keep this question very simple how are you feeling <laughs> <laughs> well uh, personally it hasn't impacted me too much anand you know mm-hmm. we are safe and secure in our homes working work continues as usual for me so nothing much has changed in that sense but at a different level it has impacted me greatly looking at the misery and distress of so many lakhs of people across the country that is really affecting me hard so let's let me think a little bit about um your work because okay. uh, when you're saying that you're thinking about the misery of uh, the lakhs of people um you you're not just responding to the news you're thinking about this as a professional right? so also, yeah. um so it will be uh, very helpful for for uh, us to know um what is your work you are a health economist and a policy expert and um, what most of us know it's a very very male dominated space uh, we think about middle aged male men uh, doctors and policy experts So what's the kind of work that you do as a as a health economist? Okay. Um so my work is isn't very different to a male health economist so I mean even if that's the image that comes up in mind when you talk about health economy. Hmm. Uh but uh, as a health economist and a public health specialist uh, my work focuses mainly on um looking at data, analyzing data especially related to health and healthcare. 
so as to understand natures of a problem and its implications, its policy implications. Mm. Um, the economist in me would be studying the efficiency and effectiveness of various, uh, you know, interventions in healthcare mm. uh, or or health. Whereas mm. the public health part of me would look at, you know, causes of morbidity and mortality in populations or countries and states, and obviously the correlations and inferences which can be drawn out from them. So mm. that's basically the broader aspect of the work that I do. Hmm. I mean, and as, as someone who is familiar with some of that the, the terms that you have used, I think I have some sense of what what you do. But can you give us very concrete examples of what kind of questions do you ask? So, for example, in the case of Corona, mm-hmm. what are the kinds of questions that you think about? So, in so, very concrete terms, what does yeah. it mean to you? So, again, let me just go back to a little of the work that I do with this think tank that I work with. So we are specifically looking at cost-benefit analysis of various uh, interventions and uh, basically understand how best the all resources are limited, right? So we basically advise people, governments, state governments, national governments on how best to use that limited amount of money that they have with them. So whether investing in health versus investing in education or investing in, in economics or, you know, uh, building a special economic zone, what would be the most beneficial for a government mm. in terms of not just the financial implications, not just the return of, uh, on, you know, of money that is coming back to them, but also the larger social and uh, environmental returns. Mm. So in that sense, I mean, what we initiated very, very uh, you know, at the very, very basic stage right now uh, on of work on Corona is to understand what are the costs and benefits associated with this entire interventions around preventing the spread of Corona infect, you know, the disease. So, for example, lockdowns. I mean, most of the world is in some stage or the other of a lockdown. Mm-hmm. But are lockdowns beneficial? Would they actually, you know, give you... Uh, an idea of when the virus would be contained or is it actually harming the economy because you know the lockdown has huge repercussions on the economy of course Mm. and other social and welfare uh, implications as we have seen Mm. so bearing in mind all of those Mm. what is the best is is the lockdown actually a good you know uh, way of containing the spread Mm. of the infection so that's work that we just started Working so, on. so would it yeah. be fair then to say that that your work essentially looks at a menu of options? That is, should we lock down? Should we uh, do the lockdown now or a few months later? Should we lock down selectively in certain places? What should the lockdown contain? These kinds of questions you're basically going to yeah. answer. Correct. Um, yeah. Which one works best? For a yeah. given situation. Yeah. Right? Also, the, the timing of a lockdown. Should it be 21 days opposed to three months? You know, mm. what what would actually work? Okay. So, yeah. so that's that's really helpful to know. So now for um, our, our listeners to understand, um, one of the things that that has happened over the last month or so um, is a range of words that expressions that we have never known before. Right. We have heard yeah. about flattening the curve, we have heard about comorbidities, we have heard about all-cause mortalities, containments, contact tracing, different kinds of strategies, and it's actually quite overwhelming. So can you please tell us, for for someone who is not in the policy space, which Mm -hmm. are these expressions that are important to understand? 
for me to be able to make sense of what the government um, is actually investing in. Correct. So actually, all those terms <laughs> that you mentioned, all of them are important. Yeah. So to to understand, I mean, let me just take you through this entire Corona uh, epidemic, which uh, you know maybe some of the listeners might not have a, a proper idea about. So starting from the very beginning, as I think most of us know now, the coronavirus started in China in November, early December, and then has slowly spread to the entire world. Mm. And what we when when we talk about the growth curve of the virus, that mm. is basically the rise of confirmed cases in any state or country. Mm. That can be tracked by the growth curve. So that the growth curve is basically telling us the number of cases over a particular time period. And if we visualize a graph, the horizontal x-axis is plotted with time, and mm. the vertical y-axis has the number of cases. So it's a very simple uh, curve, basically mm. looking at the number of cases uh, over a period of time. So that gives us a curve. Now, in most countries and even in India specifically now, especially now, the growth curve is rising at a very vertical, uh, you know, range. It's, it's rising upwards. Definitely, it's rising upwards. But the the way it's rising is it's far more vertical than horizontal. So that, that basically, basically means I'm just trying yeah. to visualize this. It means yeah. that last week I had five cases. Yeah. The week before that I had only two, mm-hmm. but. This week, I have 20 cases, right? Exactly. That basically exactly. means that the curve is rising up. Absolutely. And because in the same means, given one-week interval, I have many yeah. cases. Hmm. Yes, that means basically the number of cases is increasing, hmm. you know, periodically as every day goes by. Hmm. So when we talk about flattening the curve, this is the curve we're talking about. And flatten it is to bring it down from that vertical growth to a more hmm. horizontal spread. How do we do that? Basically by uh, limiting the number of new cases uh, that are occurring every day. So that is what flatten the curve basically means. It's not actually sitting and beating a curve to flatten it, but basically limiting the number of new cases that can occur over a period of time in particular geographies, in a country or a state, etc. And uh, how do we do that? So the next two uh, phrases that you mentioned, containment and contact tracing. These are two of the measures that are used to contain or limit the number of new cases. Uh, What is containment? Containment usually is, uh, you know, a measure put into place at the beginning of an epidemic, when it is, when the epidemic is just starting to, you know, spread its way uh, through a particular area. So containment basically involves tracking the spread of a disease within a, a limited community. And then you, uh, you know, identify and isolate the infected people, mm. quarantine them. So therefore, you are limiting the spread of the infection. You mm. are limiting how many people that infected person can go out and actually infect further. Right. Mm. And so, uh, it's, so it's basically yeah. geographically limiting it. Right. Correct. So it means Correct. that, that, that if, if, if one town has it, you try and make sure that it just stops in that one town and it ends there. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So containment, I mean, as the mm. word suggests, you seal borders, you limit movement, you restrict people's moving around and getting in contact with others, and mm. therefore you're containing the spread of the disease. Mm. Uh, contract tracing is when contacts of an infected person, that could be family members, it could be people the infected person has come into contact with while, you know, even just going to the supermarket and picking up stuff. Mm. You can uh, infect other people. So those are the contacts, not just family, Mm. not just limited to the household, but any person that the infected patient has come into contact with. For example, I'm sure you must have seen in the news the other day in Delhi, the pizza delivery boy has, you know, he turned Mm. out to be, he tested positive. Mm. So then some 80 houses that he, um, you know, he delivered to that particular day 
Mm-hmm. All of them are, you know, all of them are contacts of that particular delivery boy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So contact tracing means you have to trace each and every one of these contacts that the patient, infected person has come in contact with, and mm-hmm. then again test them, isolate them if they're showing any signs of the symptoms, quarantine them. So again, you are limiting the spread of the infection. So, but mm-hmm. here you're actually aggressively going out and uh, testing for people who have come in contact with an infected person. So, and, yeah. Mm, yeah, go on. Mm-hmm. No, and then mm-hmm. you asked about community transmission. So, mm-hmm. uh, what is exactly, I mean, what exactly is community transmission? Again, in an epidemic, there are usually stages to the spread of the disease, right? Mm-hmm. So, the first stage is the first sign of the disease, which mm-hmm. happens usually in an epidemic with people with a travel history. So, as we saw here, the first mm-hmm. patient was in Kerala who had just returned from, you know, a trip abroad. So that's the first stage. And this stage, the number of people infected is usually very low because it's just starting to spread. Mm. Stage two is local transmission. So that happens when people who are infected and who have a travel history spread the virus to close people, as in, you know, again, household members, family members, uh, friends, whatever. Mm. The third stage three, which is the community uh, transmission stage, which is where India is at right now, is when infections start happening randomly. You may not have come in contact with an infected person. You may not know anybody who is infected. You may not have, you know, any Mm. contact with the infection or have not been exposed to the infection, but you still test positive. That Mm. means the source of the virus to have spread to you, we cannot trace it. I mean, there is no clear line through which you have, you know, been uh, infected. But you've still got infected. That is community transmission and it is a dangerous phase because you don't know where the infection is going to be, you know, uh, hmm. reaching people. Hmm. So what do we do in, in, in the community transmission stage? Because we don't even know exactly where is the, the infection coming from. Then what do we do um, as a strategy for dealing with it? Do we still continue with containment that is i know that this is the area in which there is community transmission and then i'm going to close this down or or do we do something else how do we do this no so what what should happen is that the containment measures continue there has to be restriction on travel and movement within those particular areas Mm. but then you also screen and you test so you screen households you screen people who may not even be showing symptoms but you Mm. know you at least try and get the symptomatic people into, you know, into your vision, line of sight, and then uh-huh. you can test them for uh, showing positive or uh, negative. Uh-huh. That is, we have to do that, yeah. The so, issue with so, India right now so, is that you're not testing enough. Yeah, so essentially what you're story. saying is that, that at the community transmission stage, mm-hmm. containment and contact tracing is not enough. We really have to go after people who may not look like corona positive but could really yes. broadly... So essentially, you have to develop some kind of a sampling strategy by which we can pick Correct. up people who are who don't look like corona suspects, but Suspect. we have to check Correct. because Absolutely. they could actually be carriers of the disease, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So b- before I actually mm. pursue that question a little further, and, and that's a very interesting point that, that we need to think about, um, a couple of uh, quick digressions. Have we really seen anything like this, um, this particular kind of pandemic situation any time in the past? Or is this something that is completely new to us as a human species? 
No, no, it's not new, definitely. I mean, we have seen occurrences, we have seen pandemic situations globally, which has, you know, affected people globally. But I don't think the scale at which COVID-19 has taken over, mm. that is something that we haven't seen before. Like, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows now of the Spanish flu, which happened in the 1918 to 1920 time period. Mm. Uh, that At that point in time, it infected about 20 quarter of the world's population, which is huge. Right. Mm. And uh, we are still nowhere close to that. But obviously the population has increased multiple <laughs> times since then. So, mm. I mean, it may mm. not. Uh, then there was the Asian flu from the late 1950s, which again uh, originated in East Asia, but it spread globally. Again, I don't think it was anywhere near the way uh, uh, COVID-19 has you know, spread and is infecting so many people. The Asian mm. flu came, claimed about, I think, about 70,000 deaths. That's it. Uh, lives so that mm. that i mean now that looks like hardly anything mm. uh mm. we have the hiv virus i mean you can't it is in a sense like an, uh, a pandemic because mm. it again it was global in nature it claimed more than 30 million lives and it still hasn't you know it still infects a lot of people mm. uh so but the covid i think the the manner in which it has spread the manner the speed at which it is infecting people Mm. Uh, right now, I think at last time, more than 22 lakh people across the world are infected. It's caused almost a one and a half lakh deaths. Uh, you know, and this is all in like you know the the rich and more developed countries right now. Mm. So that's really a cause to worry. You know, when it reaches the poorer countries, when it starts affecting and uh, killing more people in the lower income countries and in you know densely populated countries, mm. what are we going to see? That that is. It's scary to think of. So in this in this recent history, uh, mm -hmm. we have to. Um, I mean, one of the sources that we can always we have to uh, fall back on is our own experience and our own practices, right? I mean, is there Correct. any place that has done um, something, uh, some kind of a reasonably successful um, battle against coronavirus or anything, any other disease that we can okay. learn from? Well, uh, against the coronavirus, I don't think of any, you know, uh, I don't think anything has so been So we have all done uniformly yeah. badly. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, but we have heard of the <laughs> Ebola virus and the Zika virus infections, which, you know, were more limited to uh, Africa and sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. Uh, the Nipah virus, I would say, you know, we could actually look in, in our own country and look at the way Kerala managed uh, the Nipah virus, which hmm. was about maybe a couple of years back. Mm. And, uh, you know, immediately contained it. Actually, even their experience with COVID-19 right now, it is, mm. Kerala has really shown the way for, for the entire country. Mm. And it's unfortunate that we are not, you know, adhering to the kind of uh, interventions and measures that they took. Mm. Um, Kerala right now has the number of, you know, recovered people from the infection far outnumber the active cases. The mm. number of deaths are you know, very low and the number of new cases are very limited as in I think for many days there aren't any new cases and then there's suddenly just one or two, not more than that. So mm. they've done a really fantastic job of uh, containing the virus, the spread mm. of the virus. Mm. So that means that there are, you know, good ways of dealing with it and there are bad ways of dealing with it and I want Absolutely. to hold on to that thought. Mm. Okay, so... Um, Going back to the the, the the issue that we were talking about a little while ago, that is, we don't know where 
is the disease spreading from in community mm-hmm. transmission times, right? Yeah. yeah. One of the, the worrisome things for many of us who've been looking at the news is this constant search uh, in some of the media threads, uh, whether it is in social media or the other uh, mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Is this is this attempt to answer the question: Who are the bearers or carriers of this virus? Mm-hmm. Who are the super spreaders? And the question always comes with a set of prejudices, right? Then, then, and it seems to serve some kind of political purposes, purposes as well. So the question that I, I want I want to think about very carefully is: Does the virus have anything at all? to do with religious practices, food-related beliefs, customs, and things like that? Does it does it really matter at all who you are? Absolutely not. I mean, let me say very clearly, the virus has nothing to do with any religious beliefs. It's yeah. primarily a zoonotic virus. That means it has been transferred from animals to humans. So in that sense, food-related, it is food-related in the sense it was, you know, as we all must be knowing, it was transferred from eating bats, mm. which is a Chinese tradition. I mean, they eat different and exotic kinds of meats hmm. so that the virus was transmitted from that batch to a human being it has then obviously mutated into a different form into a different kind of viral infection and hmm. now spreads primarily through contact through hmm. contact with infected people hmm. so it it doesn't matter which religion you belong to <laughs> or which country you belong to or whether you know you're a poor person or a rich person you if you are in contact with an infected person you are going to get it the only thing that we need to, you know, really um, focus on is that sanitation and hygiene is the key to not getting infected. Sanitation, mm. hygiene, and obviously not coming in contact with uh, infected people. Mm. So it has nothing to do with religion, believe me. <laughs> in some way, it is actually quite reassuring to know that we are all equal, at least in, in front Absolutely. of the virus. <laughs> the virus is a great level. <laughs> 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 okay. So to move on from there, one of the questions that we've been thinking about is um, does does the size of the settlement matter to the virus in the sense that um, are we seeing at least um, some kind of a difference between a village which has 4,000 people, um, a town which has uh, 4 lakh population and a city which has metropolis which has let's say 60 lakhs you know the reason why this question seems to be interesting to me is that Bhilwara, a town mm-hmm. of maybe 4 lakh with a lot of mills and a lot of industrial workforce um, has claimed to have actually completely brought down the virus right how did Bhilwara manage to humble the virus while uh, everybody else is reeling under it correct that is true. And it is true. Bhilwara has managed, I mean, I think it's the only other uh, uh, area apart from the state of Kerala that has uh, is not showing new infections over a specific uh, time period, the recent time period. Mm-hmm. So, but Bhilwara is a tough act to follow and a tough example to follow, for example, you know, for a, a city like Hyderabad to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened is that uh, a doctor, the first person to test positive was a doctor who was treating patients at one of the hospitals, a public hospital in the in the district. Mm. So the minute he tested positive, the state machinery, the state administration really took, you know, things into hand and mm. there was immediate sealing of borders. There was huge screening drives which were carried out through the entire uh, district. 
Mm. I think almost 10 lakh households were screened, which mm. is really commendable. Mm. And on those who were even slightly suspect, there was strict isolation imposed and mm. curfew was imposed. There was absolutely no movement allowed. Mm. And in all this, the one good thing, I mean, you know, the really good thing they did was they ensured that people didn't have to step out for, you know, basic necessities like groceries, dairy, or even medicines. That was delivered to each doorstep. Is mm. that possible to do in a city like Hyderabad? That really requires immense political will and, you know, uh, really strong machinery, which can do that. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure whether that we would be able to do it in uh, in, in cities. Uh, this also, you asked about, you know, lower, uh, smaller size, settlements. Yeah, smaller settlements. Uh, I don't think it's a, it's a rural problem as of now. I mean, the virus is still mainly largely restricted to urban areas and the larger towns and metropolises. Mm. Uh, but when, when it does reach, at some point it will reach. I mean, given the whole welfare crisis and the urban migrant worker issue, mm. at some point the virus is going to reach the rural areas also. Hmm. That then it is going to be a huge problem in terms of even identifying, uh, you know, people who are infected and then isolating them, quarantining them. How are we going to do it? I mean, the, the government right now, the central government, I don't know whether it's thinking about all these things. I mean, they're just intent on getting the lockdown put into place. What are hmm. they doing in the lockdown period? What is being done? Nothing. I mean, as far as one can conceivably see. Mm. Nothing much is being do, da, done. I mean, other cities, other countries are taking this lockdown period as a, a means to, you know, amplify, increase health infrastructure, increase the number of testing. Mm. But I don't see that happening in most of parts of the country here. So essentially, the lockdown you're, you're suggesting is a period when you slow down the spread of the virus on the one side. and. Yeah. When you lift the lockdown, it's possible that the virus spread will begin to happen much faster. But we will be better equipped because you have used this lockdown for increasing our capacity to deal with right? Correct. Yeah, we should have done that. But are mm. we doing that? I mean, mm. I'm not too sure whether they're actually doing that. And this is actually the, the, the most intriguing thing for me, right? That Why is it that um, we don't seem to have anyone who is able to say that I know what is happening. <laughs> it does look like many of us are, are actually hearing very often that I'm not quite sure what's happening. Correct. correct. So um, let's think about the, the, the state of Telangana. What do you think is going on here? In I don't want to compare this to other states because Hyderabad is actually a very unusual um, region. But given the specificity of Telangana and Hyderabad, mm -hmm. Um, what are we seeing here in in this region? How do you think we are doing? I think we're doing reasonably well. I mean, given that we were one of the earlier states to, you know, start off with uh, infection, with the mm. viral infection, we're doing pretty all right, especially mm. when we compare ourselves against states like uh, Madhya Pradesh, I mean, which is like totally unraveling right now. Mm. And this is without without having any of the Tablighi Jamaat members going to Madhya Pradesh and infecting people. <laughs> in spite of that, it's managing to do very well on its own. Mm. Uh, so right now, I think we have about 700-odd cases in the state, uh, mm. of which almost 200 have recovered. So the recovery rate is good. We are at about 27%. Mm. Uh, Kerala, which is like I told you earlier, is, is has more recovered patients. 
Hmm. Uh, that their recovery rate is about 43. So they are they are good. I mean, we are in a happy space right now. If we can continue the the kind of uh, measures we are taking, and if this this remains, the number of new cases also every day are not too many. I mean, you know, range between about 30 to 60 every day, which compared again to other states, which are increasing by in the hundreds, 150 plus. Hmm. That's also good. And mm. over and above, uh, out of the 700 odd cases, we have had only about 18 deaths. So obviously, mm. we are doing something right. Maybe isolating, you know, identifying the patients early on, and then taking adequate care of them. Mm. Because uh, Maharashtra has, I mean, Maharashtra anyways has a lot many more cases, almost uh, three or four times the number that we have in Telangana, mm. and therefore the number of deaths is also much higher. but uh, madhya pradesh for example similar a slightly more number of uh, cases mm. in a much smaller time frame but mm. the number of deaths is like almost a 60 mm. so and even gujarat and gujarat also has about slightly more number of cases than telangana but their deaths are almost uh, triple the number that we have mm. so i think we are doing well uh, mm. we still need to take uh, you know immense precaution the state is doing its bit by ensuring some amount of welfare measures are put into place for its citizens and therefore i think uh, that's that's good proactiveness shown by the administration mm. but yeah i mean to reach a space like kerala we still have to work a lot much more <laughs> yeah so let's take the, the 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 story of hyderabad city itself right and and i'm trying to get some specific um, answers here Mm-hmm. which is that it's a city of of uh, anywhere between 650 and 1000 square kilometers that's huge yeah and um 8, 8 million population maybe a little more maybe a little less in the urban agglomeration 1400 slums um which are recognized and there may be many more um very very um complex population with very different identities very different kind of working populations in the city so given all of this um what do you think should be our priorities in hyderabad you know because when you can do the containment work in mm-hmm. one part of the city you are you are covering many different kinds of habitations right you, know, you have a gated community and right next to it you have a older basti and then you have a squatter settlement and some older middle class residences and maybe a little bit of industry all of it thrown into one place correct right so what what should we be looking out for in in a situation like this how how difficult is this to how how, how uh, different is this from other places so uh, you know the government has identified containment centers across the city and uh, quite a few of them Mm-hmm. So like you said it's a happy mix of all different kinds of settlements in in one uh, one spot. Mm-hmm. So in that sense it makes uh, one's uh, the administration's work that much more complex because mm-hmm. addressing the needs of a of a quarter settlement versus addressing the needs of a a regular middle class uh, locality is is very different. Mm-hmm. But uh, like i said also earlier the the government is doing its bit the welfare issues for the migrant laborers to some extent are be i mean definitely better than in other states of the country are being taken care of hmm. um, what i think we need to amplify is the communication the communication regarding the stigma of the infection 
there are mm. all sorts of you know there's a whole lot of sudden vigilantism which has taken over and you know people are stopping other people from going out if they're not uh, equipped with uh, gloves and masks it mm. it's not necessary right now i mean it is necessary but one doesn't have to be so Uh, what is the word? Uh, hyper Unity. about it. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's not a crime. I mean, see, the 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 point of the lockdown is not it's not to enforce curfew. It is basically to help people not mm. get infected. That that distinction between a, a punishment for you know stepping out of home versus uh, being allowed to do that because you need to go somewhere or you need to reach somewhere that mm. has to be communicated very clearly. So you think that this is actually an, an issue of being able to reach out through a much more diverse range of communication strategies to neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, we yes. need that. I mean, at some stage, we do need that, definitely. Okay, so um, let's let, let's um, um, before we close the the interview, I wanted to ask you um, another uh, personal question. um you're someone who um has a lot of travel in your work um i'm assuming that you also work from home a lot yes. what has changed in the last 30 days in your life yeah so first of all like <laughs> you said the travel has come to a grinding halt <laughs> i am am at home but in others uh, in another sense work continues as usual for me as i have always worked virtually with the rest of my team from across the world mm. so that hasn't changed but mm. uh, um because everyone else is also at home things are definitely busier <laughs> and far more uh, you know far much more to be done mm. um, and a lot of multitasking skills have uh, which i guess all women have but uh, <laughs> they're just getting sharper <laughs> So, okay yeah, so but, yeah, yeah to 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 close this close this conversation i just want to ask you one last question mm-hmm. if if i were to ask you what are the three big things that you wish for just now uh, mm-hmm. from the government or from the community what would mm-hmm. those be okay the first i think would be you know for a cure or some way of uh, treating and curing people of the viral infection we know that the vaccines are still a way off at least a year if not more away mm-hmm. so uh, new treatments are being tried out there's some clinical trials being you know trying being tried out for uh, plasma treatment therapy mm-hmm. and i'm just hoping something like something works so that we get to be able to cure far more people than we are doing right now Okay. That definitely is the first. Secondly, mm. I I honestly wish at the community level, at at individual level, and at you know human being level, that people now understand the futility of fighting over religion and caste. Honestly, that is mm. a wish. That is a wish that has always stayed with me. But it becomes even more crucial in times like these, mm. where you realize the pettiness of it all. I mean, you know, we need to live together. We need to live in harmony. and we need to take care of the vulnerable and marginalized and not worry over which community they belong to or mm. Mm. they shouldn't be made to suffer for no fault of theirs mm. you have one more okay <laughs> <laughs> you have one more wish okay Please so the third thing given that i come from a health background i you know i guess i don't know how many people know but government spending on healthcare is really really low very low I honestly wish that the government now steps up to amplify and increase healthcare spending, at least double it, if not triple it, 
which is where most other countries in the world are, so that better health care, better health infrastructure can be provided. Because otherwise, all it takes for uh, for you know people to be pushed into uh, into poverty is just one small illness. That's it. I mean, health health and health spending is one of the biggest uh, reasons for people falling into poverty. So I really want the government to think along those lines. I mean, they've been saying it for so many years, but it's never been done. But I think now is the time to really increase healthcare budgets. I hope it will happen. Thank you very much, Salinaji. Thanks, we'll thanks, Salinaji. Thank you. It was yeah. wonderful talking. Bye.